Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Our series on the book of John, the 15th chapter, as we'll be winding up that chapter today with the last few verses. And the subject matter that Jesus brings to our attention now turns to the world's attitude towards Christians. How many of you here today have ever been persecuted for being a Christian? Could I see your hand? We need to get more of you involved in that. I would say by far the majority could not raise their hand and say you've ever been persecuted as a Christian. And maybe you're struggling with the word persecution because you think you've never been tied up and drugged behind a car or something. I don't know. But when I say persecuted, somebody has tried to make life miserable for you solely because they know that you're a Christian. Now, that's a pretty mild definition of persecution, I understand. But the persecution of Christians is getting worse in our nation. The the general attitude of people is turning against Christianity. If you have witnessed this, then you have probably asked yourself the simple question, why do they hate us so much? Now, maybe you work in, a, in an environment that people know you're a Christian and it doesn't bother them. Then you're blessed. If you work in an environment where people are rude to you, mistreating you, verbally abusing you because of your Christianity, then I would count that as a, a mild form of persecution because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew that was coming because they hated him. And so at the end of that 15th chapter, he speaks to his disciples, and he warns them, now look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And he prepared them. Let me read this passage for you, and then we'll deal with the the points that kind of leap out at us. In the 18th verse, Jesus says, if the world hates you, Keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Now let me pause before I read any farther and just make this comment, that Jesus is making an assumption that his disciples know what he means when he uses the term the world. We could probably have some little debate on what does the world mean, but in the context in which Jesus is using that term, he's referring to everybody who was not a believer in him, a follower of him. That, in his broad definition, became the world. 
So even with that very simple definition of, world, of the world, we can make an application to our lives and our circumstance today. This is basically not the world. This is the church. But there might be people from the world that join us once in a while. I don't want to say that to try and make a division as to them and us. But there is a, a tension between the followers of Jesus Christ and the world. So Jesus is warning them, if you belonged to the world, then they would love you with their own special brand of love. But you don't belong to them, and the reason you don't belong is because I've chosen you out of the world. And he says, remember, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will persecute you also. And they did, and they do. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoke to them, they would not be, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Now, Naturally, not everybody who was not a believer in Jesus or not a follower in Jesus hated Jesus. As a matter of fact, some came to love him, to follow him. So it's not the entire world. It's those who have had an opportunity to make a decision about Jesus and then decided, no, that became Essentially, the opposition, the world, those who did not love him, but those who decided to despise him. Not everybody in the world that knows you're a Christian hates you. Some people that are in the world, as I continue to use that term freely because Jesus used it, know you're a Christian and they still tolerate you. Maybe they even kind of like you. So we're not trying to draw this stark line that says anybody who's not a Christian just automatically hates you. That's just not the case. But the fact of the matter is there are a number of people that are not Christians that do not like Christianity, do not like Christians, do not like Christ. And since you're a member of this side of the team, you indirectly are a recipient of some of that anger and wrath and attitude. Now, when I said how many of you here have been persecuted and very few of you raised your hands, I'm really a little bit shocked, and we're going to get into some of the reasons why that might be. And I want you to pay very close attention because it's going to take a real investigation and evaluation of yourself to understand why this is so. First of all, explaining the world's hatred of Christ, 
Christians, Christianity, I'm just going to throw them all in one lump sum. I'll separate them out a little bit later before I'm done. But the first thing that Jesus says that would explain this, he says the world hates you because you don't belong to their club. Jesus basically told his disciples, the reason the world hates you is because you don't belong to their social network. You don't fit in with them. And the reason you don't fit in with them is because I chose you out from among them. So see, Jesus views this world as this huge social club that if you act like them and talk like them and walk like them, that they accept you. But if you do not talk like them, immediately they sense an invader. They sense an imposter. They sense somebody that's not quite like them. They might catch you not laughing at their filthy jokes. And suddenly they are very wary of you. Ah! We have one amongst us that's not like us. Be very careful. Well, I've run into that situation a number of times. As a Christian, you get in a position where somebody just assumes that you have a mentality like you have, so you're going to enjoy their form of humor, the things that they enjoy. I've had people that have offered me drinks that I have to explain to them no, thank you, I, I don't drink. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we've got another weirdo in our midst. I'm, I did a, 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 a child dedication in one of my churches in California. Now, you have to understand California is very liberal in many, many ways. And in this child dedication, I just happened to pray over this little baby. A prayer that says, God, watch out for this little life. Protect this little baby from the elements of the world. And for some reason, out of my mouth came this little prayer. And Lord, don't even let the taste of wine pass this baby's lips. Now, I had a man sitting in my office chiding me, deriding me, spitefully. How dare you pray such a prayer? How dare you insinuate to the rest of these people there's anything wrong with that? Well, I'm not going to get in to that subject matter today. I just want to let you know that there was a value that had been placed in me in my walk with Jesus Christ that I wanted to impart that value through the, the directing uh, and protecting power of the Holy Spirit to another life so they could enjoy the freedom and the joy in the Lord that I enjoy. And somebody came in and took offense to it. How dare I? You see, there is this tension between the world and the followers of Jesus Christ. I was sitting in the barber's chair a few years ago, and he decided, you know, how many of you know that sometimes barber shops are just kind of like men's private little hangouts? And of course, when men give it in private little hangouts, men do all kinds of gross things. So here I was in this barber's chair, and he just assumed I was a good old guy of the world. He didn't know me from anybody. So he began to tell a nasty joke. 
and I'm enduring this nasty joke, and when he got done, there was dead silence. I didn't smile. I didn't laugh. I didn't wink. I just sit there, and it was a real awkward time for both of us because generally he gets a big guffaw from anybody that's in the chair, and they tell a nasty joke, and they all laugh, ha-ha. And he got done, and I'm just sitting there, stony silence, and he says, well, it was a dumb joke anyway. And he went on, and I had to, I had to keep an eye on him cutting my hair because I think he had me already sized up by this time. This guy is not normal. He doesn't laugh at the normal things. Not like normal people that come in here. Well, we could debate who was normal and who was not, but I'm not going to go there this morning. So Jesus said, you don't belong to the world, and they're suspicious of you, and the reason that you don't belong and you don't fit is because I chose you out of that world. There was a separation that came. Don't get ahead of me. Don't try and figure this out. I'm going to explain what it means when Jesus separated them out from the world. But he said, I have made this distinction between you and the world, and the world sees you coming. They can spot you. They can sense you. They just know you're not quite like them. And now there's an enmity between you and the world. They're not real comfortable with you being around. I remember when I was just a child, in elementary school and we were out playing on the playground and some of the playmates that I had even at that time elementary school uh, had pretty bad language so we were playing a game of softball and one of the young boys my classmates got angry with what happened and before he said anything, he came over, walked over, took his hands, and plugged my ears, and then he proceeded to cuss somebody out and walk away. You know why he did that? Because he knew that I didn't talk like that, I didn't tolerate that, so he was going to shield me from his filthy outburst. I'm standing there like that. I just don't know exactly what just happened to me right there. But I think my light is shining. <laughs> I chose you out of this world. Now, God does not call you to be separated from the world so that you never have any contact or interaction. You understand what I'm talking about? He calls you out as far as having a spiritual connection, an intimate connection with the, the world, to emulate their ways, to talk like them, to walk like them, to laugh with their filthy jokes, to be a part of it. That's what he's calling you out of. But he's not calling you out of the world to say, I want you to go separate yourself and live in a dark closet somewhere and never touch the world. Now, I was just watching a, a short documentary, a, a part of a documentary yesterday on people with OCD. And as I was watching some of these people that had OCD, there was a man that invited people into his house, but he warned them, I, I'm having a real hard time inviting you in here, but I'm telling you, don't touch anything. And on the way out of the house, he had saw them brush against a bush, touch the doorknob, and he said, now from now on, I cannot touch this, I cannot touch this, and I cannot touch this. Somebody touched it. Well, Jesus is not trying to get you to be an OCD Christian. He's not trying to get you to say, ooh, worldlings. I cannot be here. In early Christianity, they began to form these monasteries where some of these people who had a desire to live for the Lord, 
follow him. Some of these men would move to the monastery and they would seclude themselves from the world, live this monastic life, and then would just be given totally to fellowship with God and prayer and serving him. But withdrawn from the world. You may not be aware of this particular story, but in the late 4th, early 5th century, there was a young boy named Simeon who became a Christian at age 13. By the age 16, he moved into a monastery and began his long journey of physically removing himself from this world. He became so extreme even in the monastery. Can you get this now? The monks in the monastery are all withdrawn from the world. This young man became so extreme and so withdrawn, even in the monastery, they kicked him out. I mean, there's being withdrawn, and then there's being withdrawn. I mean, you don't fit in here. You don't even have community with us. Nobody was holy enough for him, I guess. His next move, when he got kicked out of the monastery, is he moved into this little hut. And he remained in seclusion in this hut for a year and a half. While he was there, he completely fasted food and drink during the Lent season. And when he emerged, people believed they had seen a miracle because they didn't know how he had survived, fasting complete liquids and complete food during the entire season of Lent. Next, Simeon wandered from this hut into the mountains, and he found this narrow opening in the rocks where he made himself a virtual prisoner. And the problem was, people found out Simeon was up there, so they kept making these pilgrimages up there to see this weird holy man. And here he was trying to get away from people, and he was drawing people to him, seeking him out for counsel and prayer, and it extremely annoyed him. So he moved on, and eventually going through the ruins of an ancient city, he found this nine-foot-tall pillar that on top of this pillar, he decided to build a little larger platform and he moved in or on and sat on top this pillar but found out quickly that this man sitting on this nine-foot pillar became a matter of interest to the rest of the world. So what they do? They came and see him. So the only direction left to go is Simeon moved to a higher pillar. He kept doing that until finally he sat on a pillar 50 feet high. And then he made appointments in the afternoon during a small window of time where people could climb the ladder to the top and have a meeting with Simeon to be prayed for or blessed or counseled. And the rest of the time he was all alone by himself. He became a, a magnet for people. Crowds would throng around the pillar. He's sitting by himself 50 feet high and the people are down there, but at least he's separated. Strangely enough, Simeon started a little trend. So somebody else got inspired by Simeon, and they lived on a pillar too, and they called him, the second one called himself Simeon Stylite the Younger. And then another one came along who was inspired by those two and carried it to a new generation and called himself Simeon Stylite the Third. But Jesus did not call his disciples to sit on a pillar or live in a cave. He sent them into the world, but he called them out of the world. He sent them to touch the world, but he sent them not to be like the world. He sent them to evangelize the world. 
But the problem is, some people don't understand the art of being in the world, but not of the world. And you've heard that phrase so many times. I know I'm not original with that, but it fits what we're talking about. People have heard that so many times. How to be in the world, but not of the world. And the, because some people don't understand how to do that, instead of evangelizing the world, the world evangelizes them. And going in to be in the world, they eventually get infected and become a part of the world. And Paul wrote this about one of his co-workers, one of the, some of the saddest words written by the hand of Paul. He said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. The world evangelized Demas. This is tricky. I think in a sense, sometimes we wish we could just take our children and wrap saran wrap around them or put them in a bubble or exclude them and send them and just hide them away from the effects of the world. But your real challenge is to somehow teach your child you're going to be in this world, but you had better never be of the world. Jesus called you to something higher than what the world is doing. Here's the bottom line. If you belong to the world, they will love you. They will appreciate you. They will applaud you. They will high-five you. But if you do not belong to them, you will inevitably, sometime, someplace along the line, you will encounter somebody who hates you, not because you've ever done anything wrong to them, but because you love Jesus and they hate Jesus. And Jesus said, the problem is they don't know my father. The reason they hate me is because they don't know the one that sent me. So you're going to run into godless people somewhere along the line that have no use for you because you belong to that Jesus crowd. Jesus said, next, the world hates you because they are convicted of their sins. They are convicted by what you stand for. I don't know how many of you, because of the stand you take for Jesus, the stand you take that is biblically based, have been called a goody two-shoes, <laughs> a killjoy, a party pooper. Because you don't play along with their games. So you're just, you're just a wet blanket. You pour cold water all over everything they've got going. But you know, you really don't have to say anything. Sometimes it's just the fact that you are present, that they know that you stand for something different than them, that it makes them so uncomfortable that they cannot freely let go and enjoy themselves because you're there. And you're just bringing such a, a cramp to their style. They could get rid of you. They could party wild. But you're there. And Jesus said, part of their problem is personal guilt. And I repeat the part that I had read. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. 
He says two things here. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, and then he said, if I had not come and done the works that nobody else could do. Two things that he did that made these people very uncomfortable with him. Number one, he had delivered the truth. He had spoken the truth, and they didn't like it, so they hated him. And the second thing is he had done the works that were proof, works that no man ever had done, no man could do. He did it, and that made him mad too because they wanted to hate him, but they couldn't figure out how to hate somebody that could do something they couldn't explain. It all pointed to he must be who he says he is, but they already hated him so much they couldn't accept it. So now they're really frustrated. They're frustrated by the things he spoke. They're frustrated by the things he did. And they just hate him. And it just became absurd, their total hatred for him. There's two possible avenues they could take. They could accept Jesus and his teachings, or they could reject him. And the world that hated Jesus chose to reject him. And they did so in great hatred and anger. And in doing so, Jesus said, they've rejected the Father. They hate me. They hate my Father. Now, the next thing Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. Servants not greater than his master. I have hung on to that verse countless times in my life and in my ministry. Because being a Christian, I've encountered a lot of hate, a lot of persecution. Being a minister, I'm a magnet for hatred and persecution. It just happens. It goes along with the ministry. Jesus said, it's all because of my name. Now, there are some people who admire Christ, but they despise Christians. You know why? Because Christians sometimes are not a good representative of Christ. I think it was uh, Max Lucado who had sat down with a group of people who were not believers. They were, they were dining together. And he said, let's, let's play word association game. He said, I'll, I'll say a word and you tell me the first word that comes to your mind. Of course, those word association games don't always go exactly as your plan, so a word response becomes a phrase response. But that's okay. He was still getting an essence, a gist of what they were feeling. So he say a word, and they would respond. Then he came to Jesus Christ. And surprisingly, the response they had to Jesus was that they admired him. The next word, he said, is Christians. And they, they flip-flopped. And they said, we hate them. Now, they admire Jesus, but they hate Christians. Folks, that's an indictment of you and me. It's an indictment of those around us who call themselves Christians. If they love Jesus, but they can't stand us, it's not Jesus' problem. It's our problem. What is going on that we are such poor representatives of Christ that they think he's great, but they can't stand Christians? Hypocrisy crudeness, maybe arrogance, maybe that attitude that not being a part of the world means you are second-class citizen in my world, and I want nothing to do with you. I can't touch you. Jesus touched the sinners. 
And it made the religious people of his day quite angry that he did that because the Pharisees had the spiritual OCD as bad as anybody. They couldn't touch unclean things and unclean people. Jesus touched lepers. And it shocked them. He touched the unclean woman. The unclean woman cleaned his feet. And they said, don't you know what kind of woman is touching you? But he touched. But he never became like them. People might admire Jesus and at the same time have no use for Christians. I would really prefer that if there are people who admire Christ, they would admire his followers. Or I would even prefer that if people hated Christ, they hated his followers, because that would tell me that they are properly reflecting Jesus. But then what about those of you here today that you call yourselves Christians, but you say, I've never been persecuted? Now, I've got a question, and I think you should be asking yourself the same question. Why? Why has there never been any backlash from the world because you're a Christian? There's a couple of possibilities. Number one, you have run into nothing but tolerant people your entire life. I don't think that's the case, but I'll make an allowance just so everybody has an escape hatch this morning. Because you're not going to like the second one. And that is that you've never displayed the character and the nature and the values and the virtue of Jesus Christ, well, it's, which at some point is going to irritate somebody. You don't come here for the purpose of irritating people, but if you let your light shine for Jesus, somebody is eventually going to take exception to that. Now, you can answer the question, why you haven't been running into any persecution. But you need to consider that if we are demonstrating the life of Jesus Christ, you're going to meet somebody in the world that is not going to appreciate that. You know, mocking Jesus has become quite a popular trend today. And it's, it went back a long, long ways. When Jesus was on trial, they mocked him. And they've been mocking him ever since. So mocking Jesus today has become quite fashionable. There is a new film in the works right now. It's called Jesus of Nazareth. Don't confuse it with the other film, Jesus of Nazareth, that has been so appreciated and so popular during the Easter season. But the new film, borrowing the same name, Jesus of Nazareth, depicts Jesus as being born as the result of a Roman soldier who raped Mary. The gay community in San Francisco hosted a contest called Hunky Jesus in which bearded contestants carried crosses and wore crowns of thorns. In her song called Judas, Lady Gaga sings about being in love with Judas, Christ's betrayer. No appreciation for Christ, but boy, did she love that man that turned him in. Comedian Sarah Silverman has a vicious, vile hatred for Christianity Christ. But probably one of the most shocking things she has done is she produced a five-minute video in which she is portrayed as being visited by Jesus, 
who appeals to her to be his spokesman to this world against the Christian community whom he describes as being intolerant. And he wants her to take the message from him to these Christians to knock it off. Then she and this mock Jesus spend the rest of the night watching an NCIS marathon on TV, eating popcorn, and Silverman later looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, when does life begin? And this mock Jesus jokingly says, life begins at 40, and they laugh. And then he says, no, seriously. Obviously alluding to the abortion debate, Jesus says, fertilized eggs are fertilized eggs. They're not people. And she gladly says, thank you very much, as it seems as though Jesus has just settled the abortion issue officially. It's an obvious mockery of the Jesus of the Bible that we know. But why? Why does the world hate Jesus? Why is the world preoccupied with this man who lived 2,000 years ago who never harmed a person, who touched the untouchable and loved the unlovely? Why does the world hate this man? Why do they hate people who love him? And it all started when they mocked him and slapped him and plucked his beard and blindfolded him and said, prophesy, who hit you? And it became a game that hell has promoted from generation to generation. Let's hate Jesus. A group that just consistently makes it their mission to hate Jesus. They don't even know why. This hatred is inexplicable by human standards. Let me illustrate this in modern context, if you will allow me to. I hope most of you know Tim Tebow. If you don't, then this is a football player out of the University of Florida who set many records throughout his college career. Personal records, school records, and college records across the board. He was a beast in football, but Tim loves Jesus. And he has always been unashamed to testify and give God the praise. Tim went on to be hired by the Denver Broncos and sat patiently on the bench until he was given a time to play. The Broncos were in a slide. They put him in as quarterback, and they began to win. Rolled off several wins in a row. Turned this team around. Tebow mania. Tim would go out there after a touchdown, and he would bow on his knee and give God thanks, and they began to mock him, hating him. He became blackballed in, in the NFL. The Denver Broncos let him go. He was hired by a couple of other teams, tried out, and they let him go. The commentators on ESPN, ESPN hated Tim Tebow. Now, you know football players can do a lot of nasty things, and they are still heralded as heroes, but let Tim Tebow kneel down and give thanks to God, and all of a sudden, the world viciously hates him. Do you realize that Tim Tebow had been dating one of these gorgeous world-class models. And that woman broke up with Tim Tebow, 
You know why? He wouldn't have sex with her. She said, I wanted to have sex with him. He wouldn't have it. I'm leaving him behind because he stands for what he believes in. His trouble because of his testimony started in college when he would write scripture verses in that black makeup below your eyes. And he'd write scripture verses in there. And they made a rule called the Tebow rule that no longer can anybody put any messages on their face. Now Tebow is no longer in football. He's just been hired by the New York Mets to play baseball in their instructional league. In his very first at bat as a professional, the very first pitch in his very first bat, he hit it out of the park for a home run. The critics who hate Tebow for anything he does and all he stands for immediately started. And here's just a few of the things I can read. I won't read you the things I can't read. The critics started. The first one, I hate him. Why? Why do you hate Tim Tebow? What did he ever do to you? They hate him because he loves Jesus. Jesus said, if the world hates you, understand this, they hated me first. They hate Tim Tebow because he loves Jesus. The next one made an excuse. He's a 30-year-old player playing against teenagers. What do you expect? The next one, it's the instructional league. Why is this news? The next one, the pitcher had to be pay off, paid off to lob him a ball. Next one, he's taking a roster spot away from somebody who can actually play. And this one, God is the worst. Because Tim Tebow hit a home run, somebody got online and said, God is the worst. They hate Jesus. They hate the Father. They hate the followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said there is no sane reason why they do this. They hated me without reason. But the root of the problem is they don't know God. They either don't believe in God or they don't honor Him as God. And it should not be surprising to us what a godless society might do. But that's where we come into play. It is our calling. It is our duty to evangelize. That means taking the message to the godless world. And we can't do that if we isolate ourselves. We can't do that if we take membership in the world. We can't do that if the world claims that we're just one of the good old boys like them. We've been called out of this world. That means three things. He separated us from the destructive ways of the world. It means that he separated us so we can be effective in reaching them because you can't pull them out of the ditch if you're in the ditch yourself. And number three, because we've been called out of this world, the world will then despise us. Oh, you think you're better than us? No. I don't think I'm better than you. But I've been called to something more noble in my life than to live my life according to the dictates of the flesh and the carnal appetites. I've been called to serve Jesus. You know, John the Baptist came and separated himself from the world. He lived like a weird holy man. Out in the woods, dressed in camel's 
hair, uh, clothing, and eating locusts, bugs, and wild honey. And he came screaming out of the wilderness, Repent! This wild-eyed maniac who hadn't had a haircut in too long. Getting in people's face and shaking his bony finger and telling him, You better repent! You're going to die. You're going to burn in hell. And Jesus said, Now when John came, you said, uh, He has a demon. And then Jesus came with a total different kind of ministry. He came and he touched people. He got a dinner invitation with anybody. He'd go and eat with them. Didn't make any difference if they sin or not. He came and he touched. And they called him a glutton and a drunkard. You can't win. If John separated himself, he's demon-possessed. If Jesus mingled with him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. What are you supposed to do? And Jesus summarized it this way. He said, what can I compare this generation to? He was frustrated with their attitude. He said, it's like children playing a game in a public square. And they complained to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. And then we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. Folks, you just can't please the world. You just have to do what you have to do. But Jesus gave two promises. And the first one, I think you've already latched onto. If they persecute you, they will persecute me. But did you see the second promise? Did you notice that when we read it? He said, but if they listened to me, they will listen to you. What's that second promise about? It's about this. It's about it doesn't matter how many people hate you. It doesn't matter how much you have to fight to maintain your stance and your morals. It doesn't matter the opposition that you face because somewhere out there in that mess, you're going to find somebody whose heart is ready to listen to you. That was the promise of Jesus. He said, you're going to get a lot of persecution, but somewhere out there, somebody who would have heard me will hear you. And that's why you keep pushing forward. And that's why you don't take it personally when people hate you. And that's why you don't give up when you face opposition, because somebody is ready to hear the good news. Somebody will respond. This is who we are working for. This is who we are laboring for. That's what our calling is about, bearing fruit. Bow your heads.